Welcome to the town of Avon. Try again. Welcome to the town of Avon Board of Zoning Appeals meeting. If you're interested in having a copy of the agenda or the staff reports, they're available on the tables to the right of the audience. This meeting is being recorded for the public record. Because of this, we request that personal conversations are kept to a minimum and all cell phones are set to vibrate with any phone calls taken outside of the chambers. If you are interested in commenting during any public hearing, please sign up on the sheets located on the tables to the right of the audience. When your name is called, please step forward to the podium, state your name and address for the record. Please address your comments to the board and not to staff or the appellant. Your comments should relate directly to the case at hand. We do understand that there may be several persons who wish to speak. The chair may therefore impose a time limit for each person. Federal law requires that the town make available to all attendees a Title VI public involvement survey. These surveys are on the table to the right of the audience. Members of the public who wish to complete this survey may do so and place them in the designated area. If because of a dis disability, any person in attendance needs assistance or accommodation to fully participate in this meeting, please notify staff. Thank you for your assistance in facilitating a respectful, fair, and timely meeting. Again, welcome to our meeting. Please stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. And we take attendance, please. Here. Ann Enman. Here. Catherine Ransberg. Here. Marcy Tashler. Here. Marcus Turner. Here. Our first time I'm on the agenda is approval of the minutes. Did anyone have any comments, questions, concerns? And we are considering the minutes of August 15th, September 19th, and October 17th. If there are no questions or concerns, we'll entertain a motion. I'll move that we approve the minutes as written for August, September, and October. A motion by Mrs. Inman is our second. I second. Second by Mrs. Ransberg. Any discussion? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Anyone opposed? Okay. Next item is request for continuances or agenda modifications. Ian? We have none. Thank you. Next item is public comment. Does anyone wish to address the council? And this is and, and this is not this is not for the public hearing for the case. This is just for general comments. We have none signed up. Okay, then we'll go ahead and close public comment. We have no old business. So our item on new business, variance 23-15, Souter Fence Variance. Ian? This is a request for approval for variance of development standards to allow for a privacy fence to be located within five feet of a buried stormwater pipe and within a drainage easement. It's located at 411 Seabreeze Circle. That's section six of Austin Lakes. It's a roughly 0.3 acre parcel there. 
this is the property in question here. And I have indicated the location of the subject fence here uh, with the red lines on the south side of the south property line. There's no significant planning history associated with this lot. It was built in 1993 under the county's jurisdiction and was later annexed into the town. Um, regarding this uh, specific issue here, a notice to correct regarding the fence uh, was sent to the homeowners on October 12th, 2023 and followed by a second letter on October 19th, 2023. As I said, it's a request for approval of a variance of development standards to allow for a privacy fence within five feet of a buried stormwater pipe and within a drainage easement. We have two subject standards here. Um, 511D2 of the UDO states that any fence, wall, or structural barrier must be a minimum of five feet from buried stormwater pipes. And section or chapter 511D1 of the UDO states that impervious fences, walls, or structural barriers are not allowed within a drainage easement. The uh, appellant requests the approval of this variance of development standards after removing and replacing a privacy fence that it existed in the same location for roughly 30 years. Uh, the fence is deemed to have been legal at the time it was originally constructed. Um, however, once the fence posts were removed, that fence then lost its legally established non-conforming status and therefore became non-compliant. Our ordinance does allow for normal maintenance and repair um, for fences as well as signs and buildings. Um, that would allow them to do normal maintenance and repair uh, without losing that legal status. Typically, we find that to be removing the actual panels um, and replacing those. But the second that you remove the actual structural posts in the fence, um, you then lose your, your uh, non-conforming status there. The site survey of the property indicates that the fence is located directly above a buried stormwater pipe and within a seven and a half foot wide drainage easement. It's seven and a half feet on, on one side of it, so I believe on the other side there's an additional seven and a half foot drainage easement um, for a total of 15 feet. The subject standards that we're here today are in place to protect the stormwater infrastructure through the town and ensure that it functions as intended um, to move water to the necessary places to avoid flooding, water damage, things of that nature. I have a plot plan here for you to review. Um, I have highlighted the drainage easement area in this yellowish area, uh, this yellowish block here. And additionally, a little hard to see here, um, I've indicated the fence in red, right on the property line. This one is a little harder to see. These were, were included in your packets. Um, so I have uh, imposed some pink lines here. The pink line is going to indicate the buried stormwater pipe that leads from the uh, cul-de-sac here along the property line to the rear of the yard um, into the lake that is to the north of the property here. Uh, just where this green symbol here is the inlet uh, into that water pipe and I actually have a picture here that's showing basically the general area of where the inlet is as it runs along the property line. While no fence is permitted to be located within five feet of a buried stormwater pipe, uh, we do have allowances for fences to be located within drainage easements. Uh, they have to meet these two conditions. One, the 
There needs to be an easement encroachment agreement signed, notarized, and recorded with the county. Um, I've left an example of what that easement encroachment agreement looks like on your desk for you to review there. Um, and the fence must be pervious. Uh, I believe the ordinance says 20% pervious to allow the flow of water. Um, so that would, we typically see picket fences or iron rod fences would allow the flow of water through. The fence that we are here meeting today is a uh, impervious privacy fence. And I don't have the best pictures, but I do believe the petitioner is here and has provided some more close-up pictures for you to see. Um, so because it's a privacy fence, it's not allowed uh, within the easement um, with this exception here. The petitioner has expressed that the constr constructing a compliant fence would be inconvenient due to the existence of trees and other structures in the area outside of the drainage easement and away from the stormwater pipe. And um, while we do find that, yeah, it's inconvenient, we, there is, compliance is still reasonably achievable and th we therefore don't find there to be a practical difficulty associated with this request. This is aerial imagery of the uh, original fence there, but again, it's been um, rebuilt in the same location in the same way. Um, and here you can see the various um, obstructions in that area that they would need to move their fence. Um, again, sure it's an inconvenience, but we do find it to be feasible and possible to achieve. Um, so with that, and for the reasons that I've stated in my staff report, we do find that the proposal does not meet the required findings of fact for approval of a variance of development standards. And we therefore recommend denial of this variance request VAR 2315 Souter Fence Variance. Subject to no conditions, and I'm available for questions. Questions for staff. Did you say the fence is right on the stormwater? Yes, it is directly on top, as indicated by this survey here. That underground stormwater pipe runs. That underground stormwater pipe runs directly along the property line. And you you referenced uh, um, actually the the rules for, for you know that require the encroachment agreement mm -hmm. and previous funds. Is that our administrative process? Yes. If they if they were to come to the permit office and ask for a fence permit for a let's say picket fence, and it is five feet away from the stormwater pipe, but still within the drainage easement then we could approve that permit without having to go um, to the Board of Zoning Appeals. Okay. I hope that answers your question. So we, we actually have two issues here. We have the issue of the easement, mm -hmm. and then we have the issue of the pipe. If the pipe did not exist, uh, it would be they could overcome the easement issue by having an, a non-impervious yeah, fence. It, in my eyes, taking off every other right, uh, right, panel there. Right, but the, but the bigger issue is that we're talking about buried pipes. Yes. And that's not something that can be overcome by any changes to the fence as it exists. The fence has to be moved. That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, I don't know if I made it clear in my presentation, now that I think about it, that the fence is already constructed and that this is coming to us uh, retroactively. And this was this was constructed without seeking approval. They, I take that back. Let me rephrase. 
there was a fence there that was previously approved under other ordinances. Correct, yes. And when this place fence was replaced, it was com the old fence was completely removed and a new fence put into place. That's correct. As opposed to repairing the old fence. That's correct, yes. Okay. And it is just this portion of the fence that we are discussing. Any other questions for staff? Yes, I got it. Do we have an ordinance on construction on property line? Is there no setback requirement for a fence? There would not be a setback requirement for fences. Okay. And then when you talk about reasonably able to construct a fence while meeting the standards, um, that there's enough distance that from what you were able to see to construct the fence, still be in the easement, that it wouldn't be on the drain pipe? Yeah, in that case, they would still need to um, easement to make a pervious, make the fence pervious. Okay. Um, but I also see a possibility of moving it outside of the easement as well. It may not be an I ideal design for the homeowner, which I understand certainly, um, but it would be able to be achieved within the standards of the ordinance. And do we know if the pipe has been damaged? We do not know that. Okay. That would require us to uh, you know, feed a camera through there, I suppose. How there's, far down is it buried? I don't know that. I did try and find that out. Uh, Drew is our liaison for the Public Works Department. He, he may be able to speak on that. For that type of stormwater pipe, it's normally 12 to 18 inches down. And as you guys know, when you put a fence post in, a lot of times it's 36 inches down. So it could have been really close or... So we're not talking five feet? No. Okay. When he mentions the five feet, it's five feet from the right, outside. Right, 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 right. So. Yeah, I'm just talking about in terms of depth. We're not talking several feet. No. Especially in an older neighborhood like that, a lot of the times it was a little more shallow with the pond in the back there. So a lot of times with the ponds, it is a little more shallow than what a new construction neighborhood would be. Okay. So based off what you were just telling us, there's a fair chance that there's damage to that stormwater pipe. There could be. The problem is with <clears throat> when you have a plot plan like this, the line is an exact science of where the pipe is. could be two inches away. It could be just a tiny fingernail away, but... That's why we tell people to stay five feet away on each side so we don't take the chance or risk our pipes being damaged. And if the pipes are damaged, that's what causes the issues with uh, water pooling in the area and the potential for flood issues. I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I back up to Austin Lakes and you just finished a year or two ago a whole, you moved all the fences along my neighborhood back in, had to redo the whole drainage and everything. Um, Which that's what the easement encroachment agreement is basically saying. It is saying that the property owner is giving the town permission to remove the fence should they need to conduct work um, in that drainage easement. And that is, uh, that's at the homeowner's cost. It's not at the town's cost to remove it and put it back. Any other questions for staff? And we are right here from petitioner. Our first speaker is... No, petitioner. Oh, you're in. It'd be... Uh, you. Mm, <laughs> Sorry. Nate Souter. 
Um, is there a chance to get the deck? Oh, there we go. Awesome. Thank you. Name, name and address. First. Of course. Yeah. My, my name is Nathaniel Souter. Um, I go by Nate. Um, depends on how mad at me you are, I guess, if we get all the way to Nathaniel. Um, my address is 410 Buckingham Place, Xenia, Ohio. Um, I'm here representing and speaking on behalf of my, my parents um, who live at 411 Seabreeze Circle, Avon, Indiana, 46123. Um, th thank you to the board for taking time for us. I really appreciate it. Again, my name is Nate Souter. Um, should the board have any questions specific to the variance or property, um, I will ask my father to provide input or feel free to ask him directly um, once we get to the Q&A because he's going to know questions more specific to a lot of the questions that you all were discussing as a group. Um, I lived in the house for 14 years and successfully left right? and went to college afterwards. Um, so I haven't, I haven't lived in the house for, for almost 20 years at, at this point. Um, for me, this is one of those unique opportunities to give back based on something I'm good at, um, which, is, which is speaking to you all. Um, where my folks provided me the opportunity a long time to do it. So now, now offense variance might seem trivial, uh, but when you're used to a security and privacy feature that allows you to create an extremely enjoyable environment for almost 30 years and are subsequently told that you can no longer have it, it's, it's pretty difficult, right? It's pretty difficult. If we could go back in time and just replace one panel at a time per year, that's quite obviously what we would do using the exact same holes, but we didn't. Um, that's because we didn't know. We haven't applied for anything at the house uh, since it was built in 1994 um, when the original... Um, when the original documents were approved. Um, so I'm, I'm up here, like I said, because I love my mom, right? Um, and to take the real emotion out of it and make a case and ask for a level of grace. Um, bottom line up front, which is what I always like when I have folks reporting to me is like, okay, Nate, like, what do you actually want? Uh, bottom line up front, we're seeking a variance for a privacy fence that has been in place for 29 years and was recently replaced in its exact previous spot due to 29 years of weather and wear. Um, I have scenarios laid out in the presentation because I felt like that was the right thing to do, right? Um, Let's see, because uh, to illustrate various approvals, but our desire is to have the solution that provides maximum security, privacy, and property, property retention that both lots have been privy to since the construction of the home in 1994. Um, we do have one final request. We'd ask the board that when you are making a ruling to be purpose, purposely specific or purposely ambiguous uh, in timelines and dates that are handed down. We've noticed that with the proprietor of 403, which is the adjacent law to ours, uh, then inferred, not implied, but inferred expectations are usually uh, predetermined resentments. Uh, and we really don't want our, that for ourselves any longer. And we obviously don't want it for you all or the town or the folks that, that work here as well. I'll now go through the presentation itself. Forgive me for reading it, right? But I'm gonna be, you can pretty much look at this as a prepared statement. Um, so the variance 2315, the summary, I largely went over the top items. Uh, public welfare, retaining the fence, maintains community well-being without harm. Adjacent area value, the removal of it or the movement of it adversely impacts uh, area utility and property value. The minimum necessary, leaving the fence where it's at, where it's been for nearly 30 years, the requested variance is the minimum to preserve uh, security and privacy. Um, and then, as, as you all know, I know I'm not telling you anything new, potentially it's for the audience, that the town incorporation occurred after the fence's existence, right, which um, we built the home in 1993. The, the approval in the back of the document was in 1994. Um, what is not going to be in the presentation, uh, which Ian actually already showed you, were a lot of the drawings that came through. So the, the first drawing in the back, the last three pages of the, uh, the presentation that I passed out, pardon me, the first one is the drawing that was the approval, right? So you'll see the stamp on it, and then you'll see along the right side of the image, it'll say like privacy fence six foot. Um, the next page is um, 
from the surveyor. And then the last page is a drawing that I laid out just to show you like, okay, here's the drainage easement. This is where the fence lies in its, in its current state. Okay, for the questions that we were asked to prepare, I'll, I'll just run down these uh, and read them verbatim. Will the approval be injurious to the public health, safety, morals, and general warfare of the community? Our answer to that is obviously uh, no. Uh, the approval for retaining the privacy fence initially granted 29 years ago, illustrated in the attached drawings, is crucial in safeguarding the well-being and security of both our property and that of our neighbors. Removing the established fence would disrupt a long-standing privacy and security measure, potentially compromising the safety and privacy of both properties. Um, this retention aligns with the fundamental aspect of preserving health, safety, and the general welfare of the community by maintaining established security features that have been in place for an extended period without causing harm. You can see in the, the images here, I'll just briefly reference these. Uh, when, when we were talking about um, the possibility under the ordinance to do things, that, that's correct. Just ask you to look at all the work that, that's been done to make it a nice livable space, and all of that would have to come up, right? So. I just ask you to acknowledge that, right? That it's not as easy as it looks and it's, it's a tremendous amount of effort that's been put into the property over the last 30 years and a tremendous amount of effort that would need to take place for something that's been there for so long. We'll go to the next slide, please. Question two, will the use and value of the area adjacent to the property included in the variance be affected in a substantially adverse way? Um, our answer to that is no. The utilization and value of the area surrounding the property which encompasses the variance approved privacy fence um, would be significantly and adversely impacted if the fence were to be removed. This fence has been an integral part of ensuring privacy, security, and delineation between properties for the last 29 years. Its removal will lead to a reduction in the functional utility and the overall value of the adjacent area, disrupting the established and beneficial property delineation of adversely affecting the privacy and security that both properties have relied, uh, relied upon for a long time. Uh, question three, if we can go to the next slide. Uh, will the strict application of the terms of the Avon zoning ordinance constitute a practical difficulty if applied to the property for which the variance is sought? Our answer to that is yes. Um, the strict application of the Avon zoning ordinance to the property where the variance is being sought would indeed pose a practical difficulty primarily due to the presence of the drainage easement. While acknowledging the theoretical need for access to the drainage easement, pardon, um, it's essential to note that for the, for the past 30 plus years, there have been no issues or disruptions related to the drainage uh, caused by the fence. Should any unforeseen problems arise? Now, this is kind of a note, right? This isn't a direct answer to the question. Should any unforeseen problems arise with the uh, drainage materials in the future? I'm saying I, on behalf of my father, fully comprehend the necessity for potential alterations to the fence to address such issues promptly. However, the absence of any drainage issues for three decades highlights that the fence hasn't impeded the function of the drainage easement, signifying a lack of practical difficulty in its current placement and emphasizes the practicality and necessity for this variance. For question four, this is where I'll, I'll get into an examples that we've laid out. Now, the way that we understand the question based on guidance um, from, the, from the staff that we've been able to talk to, um, I'll, I'll go into those in a second. For question four, is the variance requested the minimum necessary? Our answer is yes. The variance sought for the already established privacy fence is indeed the minimum necessary for maintaining the long established security and privacy between properties. The fence's current placement and design represent the least intrusive and essential means to ensure the safety and privacy of both properties without impeding the function of the drainage easement. Um, no alternative method exists that would provide the same level of security and privacy without uh, significantly compromising the established safety and privacy measures. The scenarios that I put together on the next slide, now this isn't like, these are, these are only in relation to each other, not total effort here. But obviously, and all of these we believe requires approval because they're under the seven and a half foot um, 
like line that I'm looking at, right? So what, what we're looking at is for the first scenario, which would be no effort, would be to leave the fence where it's at in the exact same place that it's always been. Now this fence was used the, the exact same holes that were dug for the first fence um, to a point where at the back of the property 403, there's a, there's a gate latch, right? And so the, the fence was built so that that gash could re, um, could re latch the way that it's done for the past, for the past 29 years. So great care was taken into that. Um, if anything, the 411 property um, lost square footage just in making sure that that gate latch to move the fence, you know, closer on our side because of the material width. For scenario two, this would also uh, acquire approval. The fence must be moved uh, five feet into the property. Um, but once again, we're, we're hoping for the no staggered board. We haven't had drainage issues on this. The slope is significant down to the lake. Um, and this provides the same number of privacy and security that we've maintained for the last period of time uh, since the home has been in existence. And then approval three, um, what we see is also an approval is that the fence must be once again, five feet into the property with a staggered board to meet uh, then the current guidelines. Those are the three scenarios that wouldn't require us to move huge pieces of established um, artifact, i.e. very large trees, mini bar that's been in existence for 20 plus years, right? I was, I was still living at home when it was there as well. If it has to move further than that, we're gonna have to significantly alter the utility and function of the backyard that's been established. Okay, um, and then we'll go to the next page. Um, and then this will be the last question. Um, the need for the variance was not caused by the owner, previous or present. Our answer to that is yes. Uh, the need for the variance concerning the privacy fence situated over the drainage easement was not initiated by the owner. The fence was originally approved and constructed 29 years ago in alignment with the regulations and approvals in place at the time. The fence's installation was a part of the initial construction drawing and was within compliance and approval at the time of its establishment. Um, and then we'd like to just add one final note. Um, that the fence was replaced because of general upkeep in the exact same location, which I stated earlier, is previously located uh, to ensure proper placement with existing gate latches. And that can be seen in the images that are on that last page. And I'd like to thank you again for your time and I'll, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, you... Um... Uh, we're gonna do the public hearing next. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We'll open up the public hearing at this time. Is there anyone signed up to speak? Yes, our first speaker is Gary Hancock. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the board, staff. My name is Gary Hancock. I'm from Danville. I'm representing Kian Visk. She is the homeowner at 403 Seabreeze Circle. She was just referenced by the petitioner as the other homeowner. She is the one immediately south of the property in question here. So she is the one on the other side of the fence in this discussion we're having today. We are here today in opposition to this request for a variance. Um, Kian is, she speaks very quickly, and she speaks English as a second language. That said, she is here with her son, Chris, and both myself and Kyung are glad to answer any questions subsequently if you have any questions. Um, I'll try and be as concise, as concise as a lawyer can be anyway, but I do want to say before I begin, I, I do want to thank the staff of, uh, that I have dealt with in the planning and the enforcement department you have an excellent staff who's been professional and courteous and helpful to me as I've 
get work through this process. And so I do want to reach out and publicly thank them for their professionalism. I've reviewed the materials and I know you've reviewed my letter and the materials likewise, and I've listened to Mr. Souter's presentation. I think this comes down to the convenience or the inconvenience of Mr. Souter, and I think that came through in his presentation, the inconvenience to that homeowner versus the safety to the community that this presents. I understand it would be inconvenient, although it's not terribly inconvenient for him to relocate the fence five yards back. It would not require the substantial uprooting of trees or the moving of uh, structures. The, it does not create a practical difficulty to move the fence off of the floodplain in the interest of public safety. Um, additionally, to make it a fence that does not interfere with the flow of flood water um, is another option if they're to seek an easement upon the existing, uh, excuse me, upon the existing uh, floodwater plain where it's at. Now, the, as detailed in the staff report, the fence rebuilt now, and the reason it would be so inconvenient is they built it in vial, they rebuilt it. And when they rebuilt it, it became non-conforming. And they rebuilt it in violation of multiple ordinances. And it's inconvenient because they sank it in concrete and it would be a lot of work for them to have to redo it. And I'm very sorry about that, but the fence endangers the community and the property and presents a safety hazard. It presents a flood danger to my client's property and to the neighboring properties if there is a flood. I understood Mr. Souter to stand up here and say just a few minutes ago that he, there hasn't been an issue in the last 30 years. And if there is an issue now, his, his, his parents understand that they would fix it. Well, that doesn't do any good if there's been a problem. They can't come back. And if they fix it at that point, there's been a major issue. And also, it also doesn't do any good if after rebuilding it, he's damaged the floodwater infrastructure. Respectfully, the fence as it is built now, the non in non-conformance with the ordinances, obstructs water flow on a floodway, and it threatens or has already damaged the underlying infrastructure for stormwater in the community. Furthermore, not brought up by the report, but of significant impact to my client, the fence has been moved three to seven inches towards my client's property. I think as discussed, the property line is a little imprecise. The last survey on this is, more, is slightly more than 20 years old. There are other ways for me to address this in other legal proceedings. They're timely and costly. We'll pursue those. But as a matter of reference, the new fence has been rebuilt slightly closer to my property as the property line is a little bit imprecise. Um, and that's a significant issue. For these reasons, the reasons detailed well by the staff report, I would ask that the findings of fact of the staff be adopted and that the variance be denied. I'm pleased to answer any questions. My client is also here. Please answer any questions if the staff has, or if you, the board has any. Thank you. Thank you. Who's next? Tim, would you like to speak? No, that was just, that was just a I just Okay. Just in case you need to ask you something. We have no other speakers signed up. Is there anyone else who wishes to speak on this case? 
Then we will close the public hearing. We'll open it up for questions and discussion. Um, yes, yeah, so I do have a question for the petitioner. <clears throat> you went to great length to talk about the easement issue and overcoming the easement issue and, and the various options available, but you failed to address the fact that the fence is directly on top of the storm sewer, yeah. which to me is the big problem. Right. The easement issue, as you point out, there's ways to overcome it. You do not address the issue of this is directly on top of a storm sewer pipe. Yeah. And, and based on the information that's provided us, I. Staff, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, there's a very good chance that in the process of, of digging and putting in these concrete foundations, that damage was done to the sewer pipe, to that to the storm water pipe. Right. How, do you, how do you address that? Yeah, th thank you for that question. So, um, in my in my comment, it was number one when we replaced the fence, we thought that we were allowed to do so because it was originally approved for us to build a fence there, right? So, but, so there, but yeah. the UDOs have been updated. Correct. And at some point, I noticed in the report that it said this town was not avail was not aware of this replacement until the homeowner visited the office to inquire about the fence. The Why was the there an inquiry the made after? The homeowner in the adjoining lot made the inquiry not Okay, us. and yeah. the, ne the next door neighbor. That's accurate. Okay, thank That's you. Accurate. That clarifies. So that. what what I did address was I know that um, I'm sorry. The way that it has been the way that it has been explained to me is that an approval of the variance could constitute one of three fixes. Right. The first fix, which I laid out in the, the three scenarios that are in the packet. The first one is that we're allowed to keep things the way that they are, keep the, the properties and the um, the area of the property is the same the way that we've always had it. The second is moving it five feet. That still requires us to have an approval of the variance. So I put that in there as like to us, that is an acceptable ruling. It's not the most ideal. It, it requires a tremendous amount of work. Well, in actuality, the only really two good options are option two and three because option one leaves it where it is, this, which, this, which this is, is directly on top of the storm, stormwater pipe. Yes, ma'am. We're, we're very aware that we're asking for a level of grace and not understanding the differences in the ordinances based on the town incorporation from 1994 to 1995. So we, we understand what we did now. We didn't know that that was a thing when we were repairing a fence that was in disrepair. Okay. Thank you. So I was looking at the, the response to, um, oh, this would be criteria five. And it says the fence was originally approved and constructed 30 plus years ago in alignment with the regulations and approvals in place at that time. Who approved this? That's illustrated on the exact next page, which would have been the developer. Okay, so the developer approved it. It was not the county. Boy, that's a, that's a question maybe for my I, father, I, I but I'm not sure. I see a red stamp record. here that says the Sanders Company. Uh, which is was that, the is that the approval that you're referring to? It is the the what I'm referring to. Yes, okay. yes, sir. Yep. Before you go away, I do have a question on the Ron Strader had in their letter talked about the fence moving to their towards their property, yeah. um, and they indicate in that letter that's moved on to their property. Okay, um, can you address that, please? Yeah, can can. And maybe this is something that um, the adjoining lots attorney can answer. I didn't catch the exact measurement. It's three to seven inches. Three to seven inches. So the way that we would address this is on page 
let's look here. There's, there's a page that shows the latch in the back. Um, oh, so regarding uh, question five, okay, there's an image on question five, the, which on the right picture, actually in both pictures, it shows what was left. So we did, did not deconstruct the fence that runs along the lake of lot 403, and that has a gate at the back of the fence, which is illustrated in the right picture. Um, that gate has a latch that latches into the fence. So the fence has to, I mean, the fence has to latch and we made the fence latch and then continue on the way that it always was. We used the exact same holes that the posts were dug from the fence that was constructed previously. We would vehemently disagree that the fence is in a different location than it was to begin with. Okay, thank you. So question for staff, I'm assuming that there was no building permit sought that this because it came after the building, the fence was constructed. That's correct, yes. And so that if the petitioner would have come and gotten a building permit, then these issues would have been addressed at the time and they would have been notified that taking the posts out means they would lose their non-conforming status. That's correct, yes. And would it be safe to say that if that conversation had been had ahead of time and they had been told if you remove the posts, then you're back to square one, they might have taken a different approach to their design. I would agree with that, yes. I do have another question for the petitioner. Um, in looking at some of your pictures here, was the previous fence a staggered board fence? It was not. It was, um, it was a solid privacy fence as, as it is now. Okay. All right. Thank you. Oh, one other. You you said you used the term that you repaired the fence, hmm. but you really didn't. We we replaced the fence because it was in disrepair and needed repair, but it was it was a little bit beyond that. Okay. The, the fence was falling down. Yes, ma'am. discussion I, I think it to me the issue to me the issue has less to do with the easement which there's there's some workarounds with the easement it has to do with the fact that this fence is directly on top of a stormwater pipe that is 18 to 24 inches underneath the ground and that could have already been damaged by the by the installment of the new fence I think this serves as a very good case for why homeowners have a responsibility and a duty to make sure they're complying with town ordinances. If, if um, you know, the Souders had come in to the city and said, we have a fence that is in desperate need of replacement, can you give us some guidance? Then we wouldn't be here today. They could have either relocated the fence or they could have built the fence differently so that it, they, did, they weren't having to deal with updated ordinances and stuff. And it is the responsibility of homeowners in a town to know what ordinances apply to their home ownership. And <clears throat> I completely understand that this is going to be very, uh, going to be inconvenient and possibly costly, but I do not 
think that providing a waiver of this variance is a good idea. And again, less to do with the easement and more to do with the location of the fence directly on top of a storm, storm pipe. The issue, the issue of fence variances has always been tough, and that's why we had the administrative process created was to, to get us out from under, especially this, this burden of practical difficulty, which is, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very difficult to prove here. I mean, if you don't have a fence, a fence is an accessory use. You've still got the house. So how do you prove a practical difficulty on that? That's always been tough. So we had this other administrative process. And um, unfortunately, it, it it just doesn't apply here. And uh, and as a pipe guy, as a guy who designs pipes, having fence posts right on top of a storm sewer is a big problem. 30 years ago, it wasn't because it was a brand new pipe. Now it's 30 years old and you can expect to be having some maintenance issues going forward. Um, it's not a good idea to have it there. It, it is a, it is an issue. It, it's a it's so it's health safety, general welfare. It definitely applies in this situation. That's a, that's a liability for the town. It also becomes a liability for the homeowner. So um, having been through the staff report and you know, we've got um, five, four out of five criteria haven't been met. So, I haven't seen anything that changes the meter for me in any of those. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, your assessment. I thought staff did a good job of um, detailing out the criteria. And I do have a, a question, um, Ian, if, if the variance is denied, the petitioner has a right to seek uh, easement, they could come back and ask for enter into an easement encroachment agreement. Um, and could they at that time also ask for a, I don't know what you call it, a full privacy fence, or would they have to do the pervious? It would have to be the, the pervious. The ordinance only allows the easement encroachment agreement to apply to pervious fences. Okay. But that still would not address the issue of being directly on top of a stormwater. It addresses the, the drainage easement, but it doesn't address the issue of it being directly on top of a storm pipe. And, and to, as I said, you know, we know how to get around the easement issue. They can, if there was no storm pipe there, they could get around the easement issue easily by just, I don't know, removing half the planks or, or doing some other cosmetic adjustment to the fence to, uh, to allow for the drainage easement. But we still haven't addressed the issue of a fence with concrete pilings being directly on top of a 30-year-old storm pipe. And, and that is, to me, I don't see a workaround around that. It, it, cannot, it can't be there. And I'm pretty homeowner friendly in terms of, <laughs> of these kinds of things. I always feel like homeowners should be given a lot of latitude for in, in these types of issues. But um, this, is, this is very specific, very fact specific. Question, if the stormwater pipe was damaged, um, whose responsibility is that? Uh, it would be the petitioner's responsibility to correct any damage because we wouldn't be able to prove that it was natural that that happened. Most likely, when they pull those posts out, we're going to know if it was damaged. And also, in the spring, when we have a heavy rain, 
if the fence is still there, we're looking at an issue of having to move the fence anyway. So if the storm, if the drain is damaged, what kind of damage would that cause other homeowners? Can you just walk me through that? Yeah, so if the pipe is damaged, um, in Ian's presentation, he had a picture of that outlet for the water. Their water wouldn't have a way to cleanly go through the pipe because all the mud and the concrete residue would be inside the pipe. So that would back up the water into the town's storm drain. And once it's in the town storm drain, then you have the water, the rainwater circulating in there on top of that, and it could back up and actually bust the pipe fully. And if we start getting all that sediment into the pond itself, then we're going to have an even larger issue and a larger cost to the town when we have to scope all that pipe out and repair it. So you're saying it would affect other homeowners in the community as well? It would. Negatively. Any other questions or discussion? And if there's none, we'll entertain, we'll entertain a motion. We don't have the motions. I've got one. You got one? Who wants it? I'll, I'll improvise. Okay. I move that we deny variance petition 2315 um, as presented due to the fact that it does not meet the criteria to allow for variances. Motion by Mrs. Ransberg is our second. Second. A second by Mr. Guckenberger. Any discussion? Roll call vote, please. Paul Guggenberger. Four. Ann Inman. Four. Catherine Ransberg. Four. Marcy Tashler. Four. Marcus Turner. Four. Variance request is denied. Thank you. And we will move on to other business. Uh, we have the approval of the calendar for 2024 Board of, Zone, Board of Zoning Appeals meetings. Yep, uh, I provide you the schedule in front of you um, for 2024. Please review it, let me know if you have any issues. If uh, Yes, it's same Tuesdays, 6.30. And there's nothing out of the ordinary, like falling on holidays or anything, they're all the, looks like they're all standard. Uh, I don't have any meeting dates this year. Yep, no meeting dates. Those dates with asterisks during the process are different, but the meeting dates are rather consistent. Meeting dates are standard. Okay. Yep. Those are just germane to you. Yes. And if there's no more discussion, we'll entertain a motion on the schedule. I'll move that we approve the 2024 meeting schedule for the Avon Board of Zoning Appeals as stated here on the form. Second. Motion by Mrs. Inman, second by Mr. Guckenberger. Discussion? Um, roll call vote, please. Paul Guckenberger? Four. Ann Inman? Four. Catherine Ranzer? Four. Marcy Tashler? Four. 
Marcus Turner. Four. 2024 meeting schedule has been approved. Anything else for the good of the cause? Nope. We have a plan commission meeting immediately following this. So apologies to those who are waiting for that one. Very good. We are adjourned. Thank you.
Welcome to the Town of Avon Advisory Plan Commission meeting. If you are interested in having a copy of the agenda, they are available on the tables to the right of the audience. We will be conducting business as outlined on the agenda. From time to time, the board may deviate from the agenda. As president of this body, I will inform those in attendance of any deviations. This meeting is being recorded for the public record. Because of this, we request that personal conversations are kept to a minimum and that all cell phones are set to vibrate. Any phone calls should be taken outside of the chambers. If you are interested in commenting during the public hearing portion of the commission's deliberations, please sign up on the sheets located on the tables to the right of the audience. When your name is called, please step forward to the podium and state your name and address for the record. Please address your comments to the board and not to staff or to the petitioner. Your comments should relate directly to the case at hand. During the conduct of the public hearing portion of the commission's deliberations, <clears throat> the petitioner will have 10 minutes to present their case to the commission. Remonstrators will have 10 minutes to present objections to the petition. Persons in support of the petition, other than the petitioner, will have 10 minutes to present support for the petition. Finally, the petitioner will close the public hearing portion of the presentation with a five-minute rebuttal period. Once the public hearing is closed, no additional testimony will be heard unless it is solicited by members of the commission during the question and answer phase of the commission's deliberations. Subdivision plat and development plan petitions are ministerial requests, meaning that if the proposal meets the requirements set forth in the town's development ordinances, the plan commission must approve the request. In the interest of transparency, state law requires that the plan commission hold a public hearing even if the development proposal must be approved. Responses to public comments and questions may be given once the public hearing portion is closed. We do understand that there may be several persons who wish to speak. In order to keep the meeting running in a timely fashion, we request that you not repeat previous comments. Thank you for your assistance in facilitating a respectful, fair, and timely meeting. Again, welcome to our meeting. Please stand for the pledge. <clears throat> Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Take a roll call. Catherine Ransberg. Here. Paul Guggenberg. Here. Bill Reed. Here. Jennifer Spencer. Here. Greg Zuzan. Present. Mason Pike. Here. Dave Coffin. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. We now move on to the approval of meeting minutes from the December 19th meeting minutes. Has everybody had an opportunity to review this? And are there any suggested edits, changes, editorial comments? Uh, that should be for the November 27th meeting. Thank Sorry. You. I think we gave you the wrong, uh, we put the wrong date on the agenda. Okay. Yes, you did. Okay. November 27th. That's correct. If there's no suggested edits, I entertain a motion to approve. So moved. Second. Second. All in favor of approving the meeting minutes of November 27th, say aye. 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 Those opposed? 
Motion carries. We now move on to the public comment section of tonight's agenda. The public, uh, public comment section is an opportunity for members of the public to speak to items that are not on tonight's agenda. I understand there are um, a couple of people who wish to speak to an item that is on our agenda towards the end relating to the adoption of 2024 rules of procedure. That particular agenda item is not subject to public comment. So if you would like to speak to that particular, those particular items now would be the time to do so. Is there anybody who would like to speak to that? Bob Culler, 1483 Laurel Oak uh, Avenue, uh, excuse me, Laurel Oak Drive, uh, Avon, Indiana. Uh, I'm representing the Coalition for Response Growth uh, in respect to the uh, 2024 rules of, of procedure, in particular, in specifically uh, uh, the sections uh, relating to uh, exhibits not being presented in electronic uh, presentation by the uh, public or remonstrators or in support. Uh, we do not feel this is appropriate uh, to be in the rules of procedures, uh, whereas a presenter uh, may present electronically, but uh, anyone else opposing or supporting cannot. Uh, we feel that, and we understand, I should say, let me say this, we do understand that the uh, emphasis on this was related to uh, computer viruses. Uh, we feel there's various options that are available out there that the town can look at to maintain the opportunity for uh, people to uh, electronically uh, oppose or support a petition. Um, we have put together a letter. Uh, we apologize that we didn't get to the to the group ahead of time. Um, we just got it out this morning, and Bill has passed it around. So uh, we provided some options on there, uh, and we could we request that you uh, uh, strike those two um, changes uh, in the rules of procedures, um, and then uh, look at various options. I request the town to look at various options uh, to provide that. Uh, um, information out there. So uh, thank you for your time. Is there anybody else who would like to speak during the public comment section for items not on the agenda other than relating to the proposed changes? Go ahead. Tim Pettigrew, 8854 Pro Trail. I'm here today to bring awareness to the Planning Commission to discuss serious homeowner situation. We believe that our opinions are being silenced concerning projects surrounding our neighborhood. Avon Planning Commission Resolution 23, Amending Rules and Procedures, reinforces our beliefs. Your proposed rule further restrict our voices to communicate our concerns. The restrictions reduce the available time to present our ideas and the method which we choose to effectively communicate those ideas. 
And again, as the uh, previous speaker talked about, this has to do with uh, exhibits not being presented in electronic presentations. Uh, we disagree with that. Uh, we have cited some freedom of speech Supreme Court cases, and we've got the documentation there to talk about uh, primarily Brown versus Entertainment Merchants, the basic principles of freedom of speech and the press, like the First Amendment, command do not vary when the new and different mediums for communications appear. Using the overhead projector is a different medium and it is the most effective communication to present your ideas. Also, there was Ward versus Rock Against Racism, allowing speakers in a public hall to express their views while denying him the use of an amplifying system. So the problem is uh, the court ruled you can't tell him how he can present. And that's ex essentially what you're doing. You're telling us we can't use the overhead projector. Also, if you take a look at the times for the public hearing, you have the petitioners for 10 minutes, remonstrators for 10, three minutes as an individual, five minutes as a group. We would like to change that to say 10 minutes as a group. So supporters for the petitioner, 10 minutes. Petitioners rebuttal is five minutes. We would like equal time to express our views and we want to add that the remonstrator's rebuttal is an additional five minutes as a final. So that way we have equal minutes between the petitioner and equal minutes between the remonstrators. So planning commission lost the importance of input from we the people considering their most important investment of our life and that's our home. So we deserve to have that time to talk about it. In uh, due process, uh, there's three items. Court determines due process requirements. One is notice, two is opportunity to be heard, and three is the impartial tribunal. That's basically how this, this whole committee is set up. However, what you're doing, you're tightening up on our time for the opportunity to be heard. And we have a problem with that. If you look at uh, Mullane versus Central Hanover Bank, uh, again, the Supreme Court ruled uh, the procedures accord full opportunity to appear and be heard. It doesn't say you will be cut off after two minutes or three minutes. Just another point, the Hendricks County Area Planning Commission rule for public hearing. Uh, they also have the three minutes for speaking, and they also have 10 minutes speaking if you're representing a group. So that is much more uh, in line with what we are looking for, and I hope I've communicated that to you. In summary, we want to use projectors. It's a freedom of speech issue and we want equal time to present. So thank you very much. Is there anything, any, 
Anybody else who would like to speak on items that are not on tonight's agenda or are not subject to public hearing? Okay, public comment section uh, period is closed. Uh, do we have any requests for continuances or agent or um, agenda modifications? No, we have one request for a continuance by a petitioner that would be Matt P. 2314 Harper Estates. And that is currently a request for major subdivision plant approval to subdivide a property into 29 single family lots utilizing the enhanced lot standards. Uh, this is located at approximately 611 North County Road 800 East, zoned R1. Uh, the petitioner is still putting together elevations. Uh, so because this is a petition that uses the enhanced lot standards, they're required to submit the elevations uh, of their of the of the dwellings they intend to construct within the subdivision for review so we can ensure that it, it complies with the ordinance. Uh, they didn't do that with their petition. Uh, they were going to continue it one month at the last meeting in order to submit those uh, those elevations and those drawings to us, and they they didn't get it to us um, in a timely manner. As a matter of fact, they got they got me one set of them today, so we had absolutely no chance to review what what, what was submitted. And they said that they were going to submit a total of twelve. Uh, buildings on this one. So they had requested a continuance to January 22nd so that they could submit the rest of the uh, elevations for review by us so that we can make a recommendation to you on their use of the enhanced lot standards. Uh, staff concurs with that continuance request and I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Have there been any previous requests for continuances? There's been one. Just yeah, there's one. there's been the, the, the one at the previous meeting. Uh, that was their, their first time on the agenda, so they are looking at like April before they, I mean, they're requesting by state law, I mean, they're supposed to have a public hearing by a certain amount of time, but they're the one requesting a continuance, so. Um, and the last one was not, was also their request. Right, both of them have been the request by the petitioner. Any questions for staff on this motion? I entertain a motion. I'll make a motion. I move that we uh, continue PUDA 2301, Avon Landing PUD text, I'm sorry, MAPP 2314, Harper Estates, uh, to continue that to the January 22nd, 2024 meeting of the Planning Commission. All in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion carries. There being no old business, we now move on to new business, which is Avon Landing. PUDA 2301, Avon Landing PUD text amendment. This is a request for approval of a plan unit development text amendment uh, approval to allow for a 850,000 square foot gross floor area industrial building if that building is a build to suit building. Uh, this is a approximately 61.957 acre property located uh, near 2375 North County Road 900 East. It's zoned plan unit development. It's the Avon Landing plan unit development. Um, property has a, a lot of land use history on it. Uh, it has been rezoned to PUD. Uh, it has a uh, primary plat and a couple secondary plats. And it also has uh, two development plan approvals, one of them for a multifamily residential development on the west side or I'm sorry, on the east side of Ronald Reagan Parkway, uh, two development plan review petitions 
on the e uh, west side of Ronald Reagan Parkway for industrial buildings. Um, this is the location of the area. It, it really encompasses the entire uh, Avon Landing plan unit development. But like I said, pretty much north of here, uh, the land uses are set through development plan review petitions that are under construction. So we're really dealing with this area right here in the Avon Landing PUD. Uh, and it's a request to amend the text of the Avon Landing PUD. And the way that the text is currently written uh, is that it limits the size of all buildings, uh, industrial buildings constructed in the PUD to 400,000 square feet. Uh, specifically, the text says the total gross floor area of uh, any building constructed within the Avon Landing Plan Unit Development uh, shall not exceed 400,000 square feet. This proposal basically adds a sort of, sort of therefore or, or however to that. Uh, and it would allow the uh, a, a building up to 850,000 square feet, provided it's a build to suit building, and it is it, it's not speculative. In other words, uh, and we've on the south part of the town, we uh, along the Ronald Reagan Parkway, we've had had us, uh, and along 100 South, we've had some speculative buildings constructed in the neighborhood of 800 to a million square feet. Um, we do recommend uh, forwarding a favorable recommendation of this petition to the town council. And I thought I had some exhibits, but I guess I didn't. I must not have put them in there. I'm sorry. Um, the petitioner is here, though, and they do have some exhibits showing you the general layout of what they propose on that one. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. So this would be, as you said, this is not speculative. This is, oh, we've got a lot of interest. This is, we have a specific tenant who would like to have this specific building built in this way. Yes. Now it's it's uh, an actual prospect that is, wants to build in Avon, but they need uh, a building larger than 400,000. They need about an 800,000 square foot building. And does the staff require commitments from that tenant? Does that, does it have to be just the developer coming and say, hey, we have this tenant who wants us to do this? What, it, what does well, the staff the, needs before they- the, the planning staff doesn't necessarily require that, but the town council does. So the, the, the petitioner typically will ask for economic development incentives, and then the council adds to the, or will usually approve those economic development incentives with commitments and conditions. But from so a zoning standpoint, there have standpoint, to have been conversations had, pretty lengthy conversations had before this it is presented. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Explain in layman's terms for me. So, in the last paragraph on section H of the staff's memo, reads: working on. Securing a prospect for the remaining lot in this section of Avon Landing Industrial, the economic development staff is unable to discuss this prospect due to a non-disclosure agreement. Therefore, the planning staff does not know who the prospect is. So is essentially that saying you don't know who the party is because of the yep. NDA? We have no idea. Yeah, I mean, the only two staff members that have the potential of knowing who that is, the, is the economic development. Nope, can't even say that. Just All right. <clears throat> yeah, we don't know who it is. Nor would the identity of the user be relevant to your decision, I would say. 
Would the identity be disclosed to town council? Ultimately, it will. Because as Bill said, as Bill said, the prospect will seek economic development incentives, tax abatement, other incentives. Um, so they will be, they will have that information. Uh, they will have that information. They will receive information. But at this stage of the proceedings, this is very common that you have a, obviously this is a large user. Um, and, um, but for, for reasons due to competition, sometimes they won't even talk to the town until they have these non-disclosure agreements, um, un, you know, signed. And so the town uh, can't say anything about it. I don't know anything about it. I just know that I know what I know, but I don't know who it is either. But I mean, for purposes of this amendment, it's not really relevant who it is. Those issues and, and obviously if it's a user that the town doesn't like, they won't get the economic development incentives. That's for the council to decide in a in a proceeding other than the rezone. Okay. Bill, so right now there's a limit of 400,000 square feet in this area, correct? Yes. Yeah, What's the, could you help me understand, it was put in for a reason, that cap. And mm -hmm. so what was the reason for that cap? And um, I, 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 if I were to argue, I would say that the intent is to avoid logistics land uses because uh, logistics land uses and you got to remember where this came from. It came from the Ronald Reagan corridor plan, which was adopted through the county essentially many, many years ago, like two decades ago or more. Uh, and at that time, the way the Ronald Reagan corridor was envisioned was a combination of um, healthcare uses, a corporate headquarters and advanced manufacturing land uses. Um, as the corridor has been completed and as it has evolved in time, a lot of the assumptions made in those early planning documents haven't been uh, haven't been achieved. Let's say, especially south of of thirty six, you'll you'll see, and that it's probably more of an influence from Plainfield uh, coming north from Plainfield on the south side of, of the town. Uh, but we have encouraged a lot of larger uh, development uh, industrial development proposals uh, south of of thirty six, and we've kept pretty close we've cleaved pretty close so the two that have already been approved are under the 400,000 obviously so this would only be one uh, we have a very limited supply of industrial land uh, and so this is one of those sort of last ones that we currently have we may have a smattering of two south of 36 but this is one of the this is like the one remaining piece we have at this current time. There may be a time in the near future where we have more, but for right now, this is probably the last industrial piece we have north of 36. Do we have any industrial uh, buildings in town limits that are between 400 and 800? If we do, it would be along Kingston Street, probably, at some of the older industrial land uses on the south side of Kingston Street. Um, We've had a number of prospects or a number of people come to us wanting to build in the 250,000 square foot range, uh, but none of them have really pulled the trigger on that particular one. And we've had two developments that have been approved uh, for smaller, you know, so 
each tenant space maybe about six thousand and six thousand square feet and there's like four of those per building and there's like uh three six to eight or twelve nineteen buildings in those two developments uh so but no as far as we usually will have a few large ones, 800 and above, and we have a smattering of smaller ones, mostly along Kingston Street, and then the two medium-sized ones that we have uh, in the first section of the Avon Landing Plan Unit development. Thanks. Any further questions for staff? I'll just say it because I've been around long enough. I think what Bill answered was is the council wanted to be, I guess, different. We didn't want million square foot warehouses, just like you said to the south of us was playing fields. So we did reduce that <coughs> to 400,000 square feet. Now, when the Chicago Industrial came in on 100 South, we had to give them a variance as well to build the million square foot and the 800 and some thousand square foot buildings. So what we wanted to make certain here, and in this case, I believe it was the tax abatement came to the council last meeting. We had the same information there as you have here. And uh, we rely on our economic development director to make the right decisions for us. And so we approved the fact that we would provide a tax abatement for this bill to suit only. And we are one of four locations, one in Ohio, we were told, and three in Hendricks County, we're one of them. And so that's what we know. So if this comes about, we gave them the tax abatement, I would support this here tonight. And if it doesn't come about and say they go to Ohio or they go somewhere else, it reverts back to the 400,000 square feet and the tax abatement that we've approved goes away. So, so this is very specific. Building, it's for a specific user who's gonna bring specific jobs with average wages of, of X. And those average wages we've been told will be are above the average median average wages in Hendricks County just to kind of give you some insight that's helpful west of 900 east i believe that's just a cornfield right what is that zoned i'm trying to picture out which one that's between heather moore and 900 yeah so along the um the trail oh 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 yeah that uh it, it, well it's it's uh i believe in um it is residential currently. Yeah, the, the the property west of 900. Now, south of the PUD, it's all zoned R2, I believe, uh, around the PUD. Now, that's controlled by a church, and there have been discussions about going forward with a different land use on that property, but nothing has been filed yet on that one. And the property to the west of... 900 is also zoned residentially and i want to say it's zoned r2 um and there's been some discussions on that parcel months ago uh, about maybe either single family or multifamily. but like i said that was probably eight months ago so i that all disappeared um i haven't heard from them back since 
Is there any further discussion? Then we invite the petitioner to come forward. Good evening, uh, Suzanne Baker, 10 West Market Street, Indianapolis. Um, I am uh, a planner at Denton's. Um, I work alongside Matt Price, who unfortunately couldn't be here tonight. And we are um, representing state in their um, petition for a um, text amendment. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. For um, a PUD text amendment for Avon Landing. Um, and I think Mr. Peoples did a good job summarizing, so I will be very brief here. Um, um, as Mr. Peoples said, the text amendment is to allow for an 850 square foot um, gross floor area industrial building. Um, if it's allowed, um, it would just be for a build to uh, suit. Um, Avon Landing site is competitive for high quality projects. Um, the allowed increase in size would allow for a, um, the flexibility for a build to uh, suit user. And then the last slide here is um, a concept plan of the proposal if approved. Obviously, um, there would be enhancements and better vetting with landscaping and that sort as the development plan would go through. And I'm, I'm sure you all would hear that again. Um, with that said, um, I'm happy to answer any questions you all may have. So could you, there's an existing building there, right? I don't believe so, no. Okay, so I'm trying to understand where this is located at then. When you go up 900, this is right at the 250 north and 900 where Hendricks Power has their utility substation, I think. And if you look to the east, you'll see the woods that's there. That's the line. It's, it's just going to be kind of... We'll see that bottom corner. Is that the utility right there? That, that substation right there in the bottom left? Yeah. Yes, that's a utility station there. Mm -hmm. Fenver's County substation there. That's where that is. Right. And I was looking at the the building I was referencing is in the upper right. Up the right hand corner? Yeah. That is the one that's on Ronald Reagan. I mean, this is all part of the development that I remember this case coming forward to the Planning Commission that include the apartments on their side around Reagan. Yes. So this is the continuation of that development. Correct. Because um, there's properties out front on Ronald Reagan that are undeveloped yet. Correct, yes. This is just a portion of the Avon Landing. And how big is that building that currently exists? The one in the... Get the picture um, on the upper right. Do you know? I do not know offhand how large that building is. 86,000 square feet? Uh, 348,000 it looks like. Okay. All right, thank you. We have the square footage. Is there a way to tell, and is, is it available, how tall it would be? 
It would allow for whatever's in the, I guess, a PUD ordinance of the maximum height allowed, which I'm not sure what that is offhand, um, but it wouldn't, it would meet those requirements. And that doesn't fall into what we're deciding tonight. That would be heard at later hearings. Because tonight we're just approving a tech, an amendment to the text that would allow something above 400,000 up to 850,000 square feet for a build to suit specific tenant. Correct. And all those, like I mentioned previously, would be vetted at the time of development plan. <clears throat> Any further questions for the petitioner? Thank you. Is there any public Thank comment? You. Anyone who would like to come forward and speak as to this agenda item? <laughs> well, it was a sign-in sheet. Welcome. <laughs> okay. That being said, public uh, public hearing or um, public comment for this agenda item is closed. Uh, discussion? Yeah, like I do remember this case when it came before us and we had a, a lot of discussion on this development. Um, I mean, this is the area where we were looking to have warehouses being developed, maybe smaller than what was anticipated here, but to the, some of the discussion that we've had already that if we approve this and the council approves it, when they come forward with a development plan, um, you know, I think we need to take into consideration what might be going in around that to make sure that even though it's not developed residential, that we put the appropriate screenings that we would if residential was in place. Because I think, Mason, when you brought that up, maybe think about that, what's the future going to look like? So we, we need to take that in mind. But you know, 400,000 or 850,000 on the development on the plot that's already there i think to attract the business um as long as the council follows through with what greg said i think it's something we ought to approve the size concerns me i there's a i appreciate the effort that was put into the original pud um and the proximity to the residential does Again, I, I'm supportive of, um, again, the original parameters that were put in place. I think it was consistent with the surrounding area. What concerns me is the size of what it could potentially be, which is massive. And this, that's what we're being asked to do is to look at whether we want to waive um, the PUD requirement as it stands to allow something this large close to, to the warehouse and or close to residential. And um, I also, well, I'll leave it at that, so. Um, Mr. Peoples, we can assume that in allowing the the increase to 850,000 square feet would not create other ordinance problems. Is that would that be correct for this site? No, this is the last this is the last lot in the Avon Landing Plan unit development. So it really would, assuming that some of the other two lots don't get torn down and rebuilt. But yeah, this this would apply to this current lot, and that's basically it. <clears throat> so there's no setback issues or anything like that that would. No, uh, the Avon Landing Plan unit development represents uh, uh, references the old ordinance. The height limit in the old ordinance was 60 feet. 
which is what the other two buildings were. The other two buildings that were constructed were, but I want to say that they came in at about 45 when they came through the review process. I don't think they went up as high as 60. I think the other thing to point out when you look at the last page where it says Project Winston, just based on the name, it's a confidential project that goes through, could either go through Brian at uh, Hendricks Economic Development Partnership, it can go through the state of Indiana, IEDC, and then anything south of this project, Chicago Industrial owns the bulk of that land already. Chicago Industrial has had conversations with Fan Trust about actually the road. Now, what you see here is at one time, Van Trust was going to bring that road from the north of this project back out to uh, 900. And I think through conversations with Chicago Industrial, who is going to develop the land south of them now to kind of work on the egress, ingress of road structure. And, um, and I think for them too, the, the the ordinance is 400,000 square foot buildings and less. So if there's any residential impact, it would be on the west side of, of 900. But to remind you, Washington Township goes to 250. Anything north of that and north of this project is all Brownsburg. And Brownsburg, <coughs> what they're going to put there, they... Actually, when I went up that road this today, on the left side in in Lincoln Township, there was a drill out there. So someone's looking. What's going there? I have no idea. But so I think what we've got here is is what we want, and uh, I'd be happy to make a motion if there's no other comments. Is there any other comments? <clears throat> I do like the fact that this proposal is not just asking for a generic increase to 850 that it is saying this is if we have a build to suit if this for a very specific tenant as opposed to just randomly building a gigantic facility so I, I like that it there are some um, parameters on this is there any further discussion if not we'll entertain a motion I make a motion we approve PUD A 23-01 Yvonne Landing PUD text amendment as presented. Let's take a vote. Catherine Ransberg? Four. Paul Guckenberger? Four. Bill Reed? Four. Jennifer Spencer? Four. Greg Zusan? Four. Mason Pike? Four. Dave Coffin? Four. Motion carries. Okay, Six, very good, one. thank you. Let's move on to other business. Recommendations to the Count Council on Crossroad Engineers Review Fees. So um, Crossroad Engineers is the consulting engineer that the town uses um, to review petitions that are pending before the plan commission. Um, and they have a fee structure and it, they have been operating under the, the fee structure for the last four years. 
and they have uh, approached us asking to raise the fees uh, of, of their review due to obviously the in inflation in the, in the recent past. Um, and some of their expenses have gone up. We have a rep representatives from Crossroad here. I presented in your packet of information the current fee structure and then the proposed fee structure that Crossroad wants uh, to uh, incorporate into the uh, review uh, of these. We, we as a staff have no objection to these. We understand the, the cost of doing business has been going up here in the last few years and, and they've been kind enough to to basically keep their fees flat for the last four. Uh, so we do have, we do uh, request a favorable recommendation to the town council. The representative from Crossroad is here. Uh, if you have any questions for him, uh, dealing with the internal workings of the engineering firm, and I'd be happy to answer any further questions that you have. How does this compare to, do we do a study and compare our consultants to other municipalities and the work that they do there, not, not this particular engineer, but engineers in general uh, I, structure. Yeah, we, we hadn't, we didn't do that, that study. Um, this was, we would have done a study like that if we were looking to raise our filing fees. Um, but we do rely on the engineering firm to tell us, uh, if they need, uh, to raise their their fees for review, um, so no, we we didn't do a study on the surrounding municipalities or other municipalities in the area, uh, seeing what their consulting engineers charge. Sometimes the municipalities have engineering staff on engineers on staff to do this sort of review too. So we'd have to find the ones that that use consulting engineers. If I'm looking at this, this looks to be about a twenty percent increase in fees. Does that sound right? That's about right. Yeah. And it's been flat for four years. They've been charging the same thing for four years. They want to do it for 24 and then we'll raise it in 25. So this is what we pay them. Well, we don't pay them. We, the, 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 the petitioners pay them. Well, that was my next question. Right. Okay. So the, yeah. it's passed on to the petitioner. Yeah. They, they get a, so when we take in a petition, we get the planning related fees. We get fees for legal notice and we get the consulting engineers fees in most cases. In some cases, some of the bigger builders have a direct relationship with the crossroad engineers and the uh, crossroad bills them directly. But in most cases, we take the check in and then we forward it to crossroad uh, when, when, so they can do their review. So yeah, this is not something that the town pays. This is something that the petitioners pay. <clears throat> Thank you. So we're just, we're being asked to forward a recommendation to town council who actually there's the one that determines yeah, the, whether accept the fees or not. Town council is the one that sets the fees to the fee schedule. Okay. If we, okay. And this is not something that requires public hearing, correct? No, no. This is just part of your okay. Part of the administration of the ordinance and uh, of the processes for you. The public doesn't necessarily have to chime in on this one. Okay. I see we have someone from Crossroads here. Does anybody have any questions? Or no? Nope. 
No? Okay. Uh, Mr. Like, Taylor, you have a question? <laughs> uh, not really a question, but uh, they've done a great job for us. As you, you see their comment letters uh, in, in your work, and you've seen Greg Ilko here, and uh, I work with a lot of engineering firms, and but I think they do a great job for, for us and have for many years. Okay. Any further questions, discussion? I'll entertain a motion. I'll make a motion. I move that we forward a, a favorable recommendation to accept the new fee schedule of uh, Crossroad Engineering to the Town Council. Okay, let's take a vote. Catherine Ransberg. Four. Paul Guckenberger. Four. Bill Reed. Four. Jennifer Spencer. Four. Greg Zusen. Four. Mason Pike. Four. Dave Kaufman. Four. Motion carries. Seven zero. Moving on to the adaptation of remote work policy. Oh yeah, remote participation policy. I'm sorry. Um, this many many months ago, we came before you, I think, with a sort of a work session or, or something where we discussed actually incorporating this policy into. Um, giving you all the ability uh, to, if you had to ch come in and participate in uh, the deliberations of the council, let's say you're sick or you're out of town or something like that. Uh, and so this, this policy would give you uh, that uh, ability to do it. There are some restrictions. I would probably let our, the legal staff really go over the details of the restrictions because they're straight out of state law. As you recall, during COVID, there were some emergency rules passed that allowed uh, basically to have uh, remote participation. If any one of you were here, we could still have meetings. And after the pandemic subsided, there were new rules passed that they really said, well, you know, uh, we kind of like this remote participation. Things happen. People do leave and maybe this is good. So the rules basically say that there has to be a quorum physically present. And if there's a quorum physically present, then uh, other members may participate remotely as long as they can be seen and heard by the public. And so this, the, this policy would just bring you into strict compliance with that new state law, but uh, it outlines it for you. And it does have, there are in the statute some limitations about you can't attend every meeting remotely. There's a rule against that. You can only have so many, so many times you're going to do that uh, per year. It also does say, and we didn't know quite how to do this, but it does say that if you do have a person participating remotely, then all votes have to be by roll call. Now, currently you have a rule that says all cases have to be decided by roll call vote, but like approval of the minutes and those sort of things would also have to be by roll call because there's no way to really know if that per how that person who's participating remotely is voting unless they speak and say that. In prior to the pandemic, you could participate remotely, but you couldn't vote. So this does preserve the right of a member who preserve who is remotely participating to actually vote, and that gets to be important in some votes, not only so that your voice is heard, but also. Uh, so that we have adequate number of people voting. Um, and and so the uh, 
there are on page three, you'll see there are some things under this new law that you that you can't vote on uh, with remote participation. Those don't apply much to us, but again, I just would point that out that that, that does occur. And so what we're trying to do is just trying to get your rules of procedure to flow with this new state law. And so we've tried to conform with that or mirror that language. And this really mirrors the council's language as well. It does. These rules are exactly the same under state law for all of the towns, agencies, councils, commissions, and boards. But that this, this way you can see it and so can the public about what these rules are. You'd be bound by these rules whether you pass this or not. We'd like to put it in there just in the interest of transparency and, uh, and also your knowledge. So this allows participation remotely without allowing it to be the privilege to be abused. Correct. That was what the state legislature, that's the issue they addressed. They were worried that no one would show up for any meetings anymore, and they didn't really <laughs> want that. And But they also, I think they get a lot of feedback that that flexibility for remote participation was really good, especially for those people who travel for business primarily, who might be busy during the day in L.A., but not at night and, and could could hop on. Uh, I know in my other commissions I've seen, we've had members participate all around the world all around the world. So it's been good for those who have to travel a lot. But yeah, they didn't want, they wanted, they didn't want a blank check. They wanted, they did want to encourage uh, active physical participation at meetings and not have you just become a remote member. And so kind of a balancing act, what the legislature did, my, my guess is they'll continue to tweak these rules. But uh, in my experience, I think it's working pretty well so far. So Dan, on, on page two, section two C, it says, if more than one member intends to participate electronically at the same meeting, the first member to provide such notice of intent may attend the meeting electronically unless such members agree otherwise. So in that case, like two people, how do the other parties agree otherwise? Is that, how is that done? So uh, the idea behind this rule was that if you if you know you can't participate, but you want to participate remotely, you would let Bill, in this case, you would let Bill know that you'll be participating remotely. And then when the next person calls them, uh, you can have two people on this board. But if the third person calls in, you say, okay, as long as I have four people here in this meeting for you guys, as long as I have four people here, that's okay. But it at some point in time, he has to start saying, you can't participate remotely. And the issue is, well, then who can? And it would be basically first come, first serve. That's how that really works. Okay. Does that need to be clarified then? Because that's that's helpful, but that, as it reads, that would be I, I agree. That's not how this reads. We could, we, we, we could uh, clarify it any way you want. Yeah. But you see, so if sometimes a person will say, look, I just, I think I'm going to be out of town and I want to do this. And then we can go back to them and say, look, we have other people who have a need. Could you be there? And they're like, well, I can be there if I really need to. Something like that. Same thing we do when we need a quorum, frankly, sometimes. Or if somebody says, look, I didn't know I was going to be out of town, but now I must be out of town and we're struggling to get a quorum, we might. That's what the otherwise means. But if you, without, if we could line it up so it's consistent with the statute and make a clarification, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, I don't have a strong preference, any, anything specific, but it just, it's a little ambiguous. I was wondering what that section actually you, meant. It uh, really to me, means. It, it was anticipate. it was just saying the first person can be there 
unless the other members say no is kind of how this was reading to me. We'd be, we'd be happy to clarify it. I would, I mean, again, I think the, the purpose is to understand that there are limitations on how many people can participate remotely. So it's not a free for all. So there has to be some mechanism. And this is what the state legislature said. This isn't uh, my language, but I'd be happy to make it more clear, but. Um, I have a question then about uh, Section 7B. It says a member who participates electronically shall be considered present for the purpose of establishing quorum. Does that apply if if it's required that half the, you know, like the majority of the members are here to establish quorum? You, you talked about physical quorum, but then it's mentioning, it's mentioning quorum where it doesn't sound like it should apply. Yeah, uh, section page. seven on the first page, section seven, part B. It says a, a member who participates electronically, electronically, shall be considered present for the purpose of establishing a quorum. But if a physical quorum's required, and that does that? Well, they are they are present for the purpose of establishing the quorum, but they don't count toward the quorum. That's addressed in another section. And so you have to have a you have to have a majority of your members physically present. Now, if but this just says again, this is the part of the rule that was abrogating the prior rule, which said you don't count for a quorum, you're not present, and you can't vote, and you can't speak. You can listen, but you can't really speak. So that's what this rule is about. And again, I, I agree with you; it's awkward language, but but I didn't write it. I mean, that's what the legislature said. So. Yeah, I was confused because I, I thought you had said physical quorum was required. Yeah, yeah that that. So I don't see why the why they would be establishing quorum if, if the physical quorum is required. Well, I would have just said they're they're present for purposes of the meeting. That was what I would have said, I would have but that. I'm not, yeah. no one will elect me. And so I don't write these laws, but I agree with you. It's awkward, but it, it's, it's exactly the, the statute. Okay. okay. But yeah, we, we have to, there's another rule that says to have a quorum, you have to have a majority of your members present. So you all would need, four all the time, always have to have four. You could have three remote. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was the old rule said, if you, you can, uh, we used to do this by phone, you know, you put out speaker and you could listen, but you couldn't speak and you couldn't vote. What they were trying to say there was that, no, you're, you're there, you're present and you can participate and you can even vote. And that was a big change. And the only caveat is that the legislature didn't like people who show up on the screen with just their name. Now we've all been to Zoom meetings and you know, I think there are two types of people in the world, those who show their face and those who don't on a Zoom meeting. And, and for reasons that I'm not clear about, the legislature that was really important, really important that people participate remotely could be seen by the public, by the public. You live stream your meetings. So, and there are some, <laughs> there are some concerns about that. Um, about visual feeds, you know, so you have to be careful with that even as you technical people would understand you don't know what you might see. Uh, <laughs> somebody could hack into their feed and show you something you don't want to see, for example. I don't think that was contemplated very well by the Cat legislature. Filter. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Didn't it? Yes. If we did have you go back or uh, and clarify, mm -hmm. does that put any other bodies, administrative bodies within the town that has already adopted this in a pinch, or are we? Are we no, what? No, it wouldn't make sense. What I would suggest is adopt it as it is, and we can bring a, a, a revision to you. And, and again, I just think that um, in the interest of.
being transparent with the public and uh, about what your rules are. I'd, I'd go ahead and get it in. We, at your next meeting, we can bring you some clarifying language. I think we can make it clear in both instances that you, Dave and Mason, you both mentioned. And I think that as long as we are just clarifying, I don't think the public access counselor who has kind of the role of administering and supervising this, I think he'll be fine as long as we aren't changing any anything. We're just uh, elaborating or clarifying. I think he'll be absolutely fine. We work them closely, but. Yeah, it's been helpful for you to explain the intent. And so to be able to put it in writing. Yeah, I think we, we can do that and make that. But again, I, I think that uh, especially going into the new year, we uh, we we're, we're heading into the time of year. We have some people get sick and whatnot, and so I think it'd be good just to get it in place, and then the rules are clear to everyone. And sometimes you'll have remonstrators who will question why is that guy on the screen and why can he participate and why is he voting. I just think this puts all that out in front of the public, and uh, so that's why I would say adopt it, and then we can bring back some tweaks. Would be my request. Respectfully, Bill, my only question is what resolution number is this? Well, I haven't, I've shown it as resolution one, but I think it might be resolution two because I think we did an economic development uh, resolution two meetings ago. Say it's the next one, it's the next one. <laughs> Any further questions or discussion? <clears throat> that I'll entertain a motion. I move that we adopt the remote participation policy as presented. Second. All in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion carries. <clears throat> move on to the <clears throat> adaptation of 2024 rules of procedure. We heard from Two members of the public who had um, questions. Yeah, so um, we've been operating on rules of procedure. Um, and the truth is, is that we have several copies of rules of procedure and we don't have any of them signed. Um, so the most recent ones we have, I want to say, are about 2018, 2017, 2018. So we thought it prudent uh, to bring a clean rules of procedure to you uh, and get it adopted get it signed uh, because we do get questions uh, from citizens petitioners remonstrators about the rules of procedure and we just want to make sure that we have a clean and official copy on on file and we intend to put it on the uh, on the web page as well uh, it does clarify some of the things um, in in the rules that are a little bit different uh, for instance section four the removal of a member um, those were in sections uh, three uh, B, and, uh, B and C in the current rules of procedure, uh, but we've made a new section and we've, uh, we've just clarified the language on uh, how a member may be removed. Not that we're thinking about removing any of you, we just want to clarify it. And I, and I believe to, to be consistent with, with the statute. Um, the meeting time, is still shown at 7 p.m. in our rules of procedure, and we've been meeting at 6.30 since I've been here. Uh, so we've changed that in the rules of procedure to, to be a 6.30 meeting time 
rather than a seven o'clock meeting time. Um, we have clarified, uh, and this, if you remember, is basically the training session that we had earlier this year about what constitutes a conflict of interest and at what point do you have to abstain. So we've uh, clarified the language of what that is um, to be more consistent with the enabling legislation and the case law. And the uh, item that is the most problematic um, uh, is, well, there, there's some, there's some clarification about the deliberation of a matter before the commission, but it is the prohibition on electronic copies of documents for general members of the public, uh, both against and for a petition. And this is a policy of the town uh, that has been recently adopted uh, for all the, the meetings that the, the town conducts. Uh, it even my uh, presentations and petitioners' presentations are reviewed. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm supposed to only do them on a certain program. However, what I do is do them on the program I'm familiar with and then hand them to Ian, and Ian then uh, puts them in, in the proper program that I'm supposed to use. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we, we and we also get petitioners uh, peti uh, electronic copies, uh, usually the Friday before the meeting. Uh, it, the, they want it at least 24 hours because they, they go through the scrubbing and all that other and review of the electronic thing. The problem is members, so there we have, when a petitioner submits it, we have contact information in the file. So we know if we run into a problem with uh, something that has been introduced into our electronic, our computer programs, our IT infrastructure, and it comes from a petitioner, we know who it is. If a member of the general public comes up here and they give their, they give Joe Smith 123 Main Street, we would have no idea if they're telling the truth or not telling the truth. And that's for people in favor of petition, and that's for people that are remonstrators of petition. And there have been cases where electronic things have been submitted to uh, cities and towns. They've thrown them on their IT infrastructure and they've been infected with the virus. Uh, so that is the reason why we don't allow members of the general public to submit electronic uh, format, uh, PowerPoint presentations and those sorts of things. Do we need to put it in the rules of procedure? It, right now it's a policy of the town. We don't allow, if it's in the rules, or not in the rules, we're not gonna allow a member of the general public to submit a, a electronic uh, document that's gonna go on our IT infrastructure uh, from a member of the general public, just because culture nowadays, you know, it's it's basically by any means necessary anymore. And, and if they screw up the government computers, hey, that's a win for some people. Uh, so we're just gonna put the kibosh on that and, and, and move on uh, with just allowing staff and petitioners to do it because we know if the petitioner tries to introduce something and we'll know how to get a hold of them. Um, so that's, and that's, that's really the, the gist of it. Uh, it'll be a policy of the town uh, going forward. We just wanted to make sure it's over in the rules of procedure. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Bill, got a question on if, we implemented a rule that if you wanted to have an electronic presentation, 
you had to present ID and it had to be presented to staff X number of hours, days, or whatever time period in advance to go through the same procedure as all the other presentations. Would that be an acceptable procedure and could it be something the staff could manage? Well, it, the problem is, is the town IT director isn't going to allow it. So yeah. what, what do we think that the petitioner, that they are more safe than a remonstrator? Well, because we have their contact information as part of an affidavit submitted to the file. Um, so is that, and so I'm, what I'm asking is maybe more towards the line of what you just said. If we put the rules in place that require to get the a certified um, identification of an individual, so it makes it harder. It doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it harder to spoof identities. Um, because I tell you, a petitioner, they could well-meaning bring in an effective thumb drive and, and we're just as bad off as somebody off the street. So I'm just looking at, we could put something in place, maybe, right. that would make it a little harder. Some planning would need to be done, but if you want to do an electronic presentation, here are the rules to do that. Well, but again, I say it, that with, can staff manage that? Because I don't know if that would open the floodgates to, okay, you had a bunch of people walking in going, hey, throw this up there for us. Well, yeah. it also makes the ability to impose legal consequences easier as opposed to anybody showing up at a meeting and say, I've got a thumb drive, I'd like to show some pictures. We don't know who that person is versus a petitioner who, you know, should, they, should there be even just a negligent transfer of a virus or something, let alone something malicious, we've got, we know where they are. Yeah, I mean, we see, we informed the petitioner during the TAC meeting <clears throat> about the rules for submission of a, of, a, of a format. Now, it used to be that all people had to submit an electronic uh, document for you because you did not want to see someone standing way back there with a little board and, and squinting at the little board. Um, but we we just there as we've migrated to a sort of a new IT infrastructure. There's been incidents that that, that have caused problems for other towns, ransomware and those sorts of things. And there's a big concern. There's been a lot of discussion about this particular requirement. And so far, IT hasn't budged. The the only reason I'm hesitant to do what you say is because I don't think. I would hate for your rules of procedure to say something and petitioners have or remonstrators and other groups come to you with the anticipation that they're going to be allowed to do that. And our IT just says, no, you can't do it. And I'm all for listening to the IT professionals that do this. Um, and I'm not a cyber guy. I'm just an IT guy that thinks about cyber stuff. But I also would rather see materials come in in advance of our meetings because getting them during the meeting or before the meeting and having to read them before uh, we look at a case i have i've always you've heard me voice this repeatedly it doesn't give us enough time to be able to look at the materials so i'd rather we implement the rules that state that to present anything at a meeting it needs to be submitted X amount of time in advance of a meeting. I would agree be with that considered. because well, but that could be done. But that that has nothing to do with putting it up there. Well, if someone it, it, if someone wants to present information to you, they can send an email to Bill. That email can be shared with you all well in advance of the hearing. 
That is not what this is about. Um, it's the thing I'm talking about, Dan, is like if can we have a procedure that would allow for electronic presentations and still safeguard the integrity of the network? And that's well, let what me, we're talking I want to I want to address two aspects of that. Number one is um, we don't have a full time IT department. Unlike some cities and towns, so we don't have any we don't have that department. That means our other employees have to do this function, and, and really they're not, no disrespect, they're not trained to do that. It's not their job. And secondly, we have, we, have, uh, we have insurance that protects us if we do have an intrusion, uh, and in order to keep that insurance, we have to meet certain protocols, um, uh, many, many protocols, and it gets the list. Oh, Ryan left. The list gets longer and longer every year. What we have to do in order to have that insurance, and since we're such a target, all municipalities are a target for ransomware primarily and malware um, and identity theft. Uh, we have to be really careful, and so um, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to. Um, to respect the position of the town administration because that's not, not the planners, but everybody else have a job that they have to do with respect to that. We have had intrusions, we have. And fortunately, they haven't been entirely successful, but we've been shut down. So these are very, the security issues, very, very concerning and those who those who wish to present information to you, they have the right to speak. They have the right to present. They can present your staff with information before the meeting. And, you know, one of my clients, the planning commission members routinely get eight or nine emails in advance of the meeting from the staff that have been shared. And they include attachments and maps and drawings and photographs and all kinds of things. Um, but what you have heard a lot about is, no, 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 I want the right to put my stuff up there. And when you start weighing the incremental value of that versus just being able to speak and then weighing that against the security issues, then I think that puts it in proper perspective. So I think you answered my question and the answer is no, that it, it's not manageable. That's why I was asking for is like, is there any procedure we could put in place? And that's what I was looking for is like, it, it probably would be inadvisable. And uh, I would respect, like we said, the IT group wouldn't want to do that. And nowadays we got to listen to those individuals. That's what I was looking for. But thank you. <laughs> any further questions or discussion? Uh, on the re resolutions, so we had we had copies uh, of the resolutions for your signatures, but we don't know what the numbers are. So we're going to find the numbers and we'll bring all these back for your signatures at the next meeting. So we don't need to sign this now. We won't need to sign it right now. We'll we'll bring it back to you the next meeting and, and have the proper resolution. So should we go ahead and do an adaptation of the resolution? Can I ask one more question? It is a short question. Um, on section four, on the removal, it talks about the appointing authority. Is it is that is there a specific appointing authority, or is it general? Because 
as the appointing authority changes, that just covers whoever has the appointing responsibility? So. The, re the appointing authority, some of you are appointed by the town council president, and some of you are appointed by the town council as a whole. Okay. And so that's why, rather than go through that, uh, we just mirror the language of the statute here, but that's what it's about, so that uh, th this this change just is to mirror the language about removal for cause, but the only person who could, the only entity which could remove you is whoever appointed you. Okay. Thank you. And they still would have to have cause. <clears throat> It used to be that you served at their pleasure, and we don't like that. The only other question I have is on page 10, and it was brought up where we give a, a group or organization five minutes. We want to give them 10. But then my question is, what what's the definition of a group or an organization? Is a group two or more people, or is a group 10 people? I believe it's five. Our limit, our, our experience has been if someone stands before you and says, I represent this HOA or I represent, as Bob does occasionally, I represent this group. That's what we consider a group. If they represent to you that they're representing a group is when we trigger that. Uh, we don't get, we haven't been in the weeds on that one so much. I might say also, you've heard some comments tonight about free speech and whatnot. So let me just address that. But the, the statute says that you, if there is a public hearing, a member of the public has a, has the right to make a reasonable opportunity to make comments. Okay. That's what the planning law says, not a free speech issue. And, you know, there's some cases cited that involve courses. You're not a court. You're not a tribunal. I know you're really important and I wish you all were rose, but you're not a court. And there are different rules about courts. So the Indiana law says, says you have to do that. That's interesting because when Greg is at a town council meeting, there's no statutory right to speak at a town council meeting. There is at a school board meeting. And there is if there's a public hearing. But when you go to the town council meeting, you have the right to attend and observe under the Indiana open door law. So people who attend your meetings who want to speak, uh, they already have kind of a, an enhanced right to comment about the cases that are before you if there's a public hearing. How much of that you allow, how, time, place, and manner, you're, you're, that's not content. That's, you're not saying we're only going to hear from one side. You're not. How you set that up, how long someone has to speak, how many times they can speak, um, whether they can pass things out to you, whether they can put things on your overhead projector, all of that is completely up to you. It would be my opinion that as long as you're allowing everyone who wants to speak to speak, there are no constitutional laws used here. This is just statutory law that says people have right to comment. And in my long experience, Greg and I were talking before over 20 years of sitting here. I started way back with Bill in the 1970s or whenever it was, Bill. Uh, 2003, 2003, you, you have all... You've always allowed comment. You people don't sign in. You still allow them to comment. You occasionally even let people comment more than once. You're not required to do any of that. But these are your rules, and the statute says you may adopt your rules to govern your meetings. So you're free to do whatever you want. Do what you want to do. But um, I just keep the focus on the law says and the uh, public access counselor says 
you do have the right to control your meetings. It's not, you know, people are not allowed to speak as long as they want. That is not true. Okay, they have no right to speak more than once under your rules or anybody else's that I know of. And um, this whole idea of rebuttal time and surrebuttal, again, it's completely up to you. It's just that in the American tradition, when you go to court, the person who goes first always gets to speak last. That's just that's where this comes from. It models what happens in a courtroom. This sort of idea that that's unfair to someone, it would not be consistent with our judicial system's notion. Uh, the person who's going first has more of a burden. The person who asks you for a variance tonight, they have to go. They go first. And then the public speaks, but it's on them, right, to show you that they have the reason. Same thing with your other cases. But having said that, they're your rules. You can make them say whatever you want as long as you do allow. I think you should allow people time to speak. I don't think it should be unlimited. I don't think you should pass rules that take away control of the meeting from you. That's, that's what I would invite you to think about. But uh, don't let anybody tell you what you can and can't do. It's not really maybe the way it's always presented. And the rest of it is just policy. I think in my experience, we really are very fortunate that our community members who, who show up and participate really, for the most part, try and be informed and they try and be respectful of our process because we've been res we're respectful of them. You know, I, I don't recall there ever being, well, I think we had one a few months ago where a gentleman stood up and said something and walked out, but that was the first time that's ever happened because people are allowed to speak. And I think giving us, you know, as, as you said, I was thinking the same thing, time, place, and manner. It's like, yeah, we get to do the way we want, so. Well, I think <clears throat> there are times we've had timers, but for the most time, we let people speak beyond three minutes. And that's usually when we've got a lot of people in the right. room. Yeah. And. I know the answer, but does it make a difference if you're a town resident or a non-town resident? So it doesn't. You can't have that restriction. Okay, so are we, does anybody want to, uh, if there's no further discussion, does anybody want to uh, move to adopt the 2024 rules of procedure? Or not? I make a motion. I move we uh, accept the uh, modified uh, rules and procedures of the plan commission as presented by staff. All in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed? Motion carries. Okay, move on to committee reports. The Board of Zoning Appeals had one case. Uh, it was a fence variance. It was heard right before <laughs> this this thing, uh, and it was denied by the Board of Zoning Appeals. Any other committee reports? 
Well, in that case, I would like to make a motion. We have received information that breaks my heart that Mr. Peoples has decided that Avon just doesn't uh, meet up to his expectations and is moving onward. And I would like to move that this council unanimously wish Mr. Peoples wonderful future and great experiences in his, in his uh, new abode and placement. Do I have a second? All in favor say aye. Aye. Thank you. We love you, and you have been a tremendous help to me personally. You've been a tremendous help to this committee, and, and uh, would you like to share with us where, where, what you think is so much better than Avon? Oh, I don't think anything's better than <laughs> Avon. I'm, I, I actually enjoy being the planning director for this town. Twice, uh, both times. Both times. Uh, so it's a weird thing. I, I talk about these things. Uh, um, I don't want to waste a lot of your time. But the first time, 2002, 2004, uh, my uh, uh, 21-year, now 21-year-old son was six months old or a year old. Uh, and at that time, this body would meet until like 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and so I would come here and I would and I was on a comp plan committee with the county and a comp plan committee here and so I was putting in like 60 hours a week uh, and I was never seeing my uh, my little boy and and an opening came up in Johnson County then and I, I took it just so I was closer to him and that I could see him at night so that was I, I loved working for Avon 2002 2004 um, and when I I was when I was, the town manager had to offer me this position about three times before I finally took it, uh, just because I had had a bad experience with a previous employer, and I was gun shy about being a planning director again. I, I, I was not confident that I could do that job again, and that had to do with my time in Greenwood. Um, so he kept on me and kept on me, and finally I collapsed like a house of cards, and I took it. And, and I uh, honestly, and I told Ian this when I hired him, I said my intention was to be here until I was 60, 62, um, and then sort of hand off the, the, the reins to him. So I, I sort of feel like I've betrayed him a little bit by leaving early. Uh, but the truth was I had some medical issues uh, and I had to, had to get some surgery and stuff like that. And I sat wallowing in my house in self-pity. Uh, and I got on the internet and I, USA Jobs, and I typed U.S. Marine Corps because I do that occasionally just so I could, I could pretend that I'm a man again. Um, <laughs> and the first thing that came up was community planner. Uh, now... In my previous iteration between Greenwood and Zionsville, when I sat for two months eating cheese sandwiches in a dark house, uh, I had applied to the federal government uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times and never heard back from them. So I applied on a lark uh, to, to that position, and they actually interviewed me and hired me. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to be the community planner for Marine Corps Base Quantico. I'm sort of going back to where I started. 
because uh, many of you probably know, I when I graduated from Indiana University in 1990, I had a job all lined up uh, to be a commissioned officer in the Marine Corps. So I, the only thing that I had to do was tell my mom at that time that I was going into the <laughs> Marine Corps, which was a hard thing to do. But I finally got, I finally bucked up the courage as a good Marine lieutenant does, and told my mom, "Oh yeah, mom." By um, the way. When she said, well, what are you going to do with your life now that you're graduated from college? I went, oh, I'm going to the Marine Corps. And then I had to deal with that. But, um, so that was, uh, so I'm sort of going home again uh, to, to Quantico and to the Marine Corps. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm 57 and it's a new adventure. And I think I got one new adventure left before I'm pretty much can say, yeah. Uh, I'm done with adventures now. Now I'm just going to live the rest of my life. So you just need to wait for the book. No, build people's big adventure. Well, <laughs> there's not going to be a book. My my problem is imposter syndrome. Every time I get into a position of responsibility, I think, why in the hell did they hire me for this? Um, well, we think you've been wonderful, and we love the work that you and the whole staff has done for this commission and for the town. And it is. Uh, Definitely your gain and our loss to have you leave us. So you're not you're in good hands. Ian here has been your planner, your senior planner for a number of years now, and uh, with Jessica and uh, Drew on staff as well. We've got a full planning staff. All they got to do is find somebody that can put up with Ian long enough. Uh, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much for the vote of confidence. Thank you for your kind words. And I'll shut up now if, because I know you all want to go home. <laughs> if there is there anything else for the good of the order? Merry Christmas. If not, Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. And this meeting is adjourned.